Welcome to Training for Ultra, the podcast. Welcome to episode 53 of the Training for Ultra podcast. My name is Rob. I also go by Training for Ultra. And today I talked to Brian Frank, the CEO and founder of Hammer Nutrition. And honestly, this whole episode is designed to be a resource for you guys, like the trail runner, the ultra runner, as a fuel and hydration kind of source to go to. Because when I started running, I couldn't find this kind of information. And so, like the previous episode, actually, with David Roach, like, I want these episodes to be a resource for you that you can actually utilize and use in your race day and think about like when you're in a difficult situation, like what am I doing wrong? How do I correct the situation? So you can finish that race. No one wants to dread a DNF. Speaking of which, I am doing Never Summer here in three days. I DNF'd last year. It was my first DNF ever. Uh, I took it kind of hard because I thought I was running like a really smart, efficient race. And I'm back this year and I'm really, really determined to finish this race. I put a lot of training in. I feel super good. Like this is some of the best training I've ever done for me to go run uh, nine times last week, you know, run every day, seven days for the week. Yeah, it's pushing it for taper, but... um, my legs are feeling really good and my mind's in it. I have Dave. We'll, we'll talk to Dave here after Brian Frank and uh, Dave Bromlick finishes the Colorado Trail. So he did over well over 500 miles on the trail. Get to hear how he finished that race up or not that race, that trail. And uh, he's pacing me and crewing me. So that gives me you know, that added support and comfort. Because Never Summer, it's it's in Gould or Gold, Colorado. It's very wild. If you want to read a wild race report, type in Never Summer 100K. And I think Ultra Running Magazine a few years ago had one that talked about all the wildlife. And I mean, it's at high altitude. So it's the average altitude of the race is 10,200 feet. And I think there's over 13,000 feet of gain. So this is a true mountain race. I DNF last year and I'm truly, truly going to put everything into it. I'm not going to hurt myself because CCC is coming up in 30 days after. Um, but I'll give you guys a good race report there. But yeah, Brian Frank, uh, you know, CEO and founder of Hammer Nutrition. It's just, it's great to be able to openly ask about his products. And, you know, this is by no means uh, use Hammer Nutrition products or, you know, who cares about your fuel because you're not using hammer? It has nothing to do with that. Like, I don't care what, if you're using goose or whatever the heck uh, nutrition product, like, I don't care. I want you guys to have fun out there. I want your fueling and hydration and everything to go well during race day. Like, that's the whole purpose of why I even put these episodes out is to motivate you, but also to give you a little bit of working knowledge and, you know, I just want it to be a resource that I didn't have. Um, so hopefully it gives back and um, helps some of you guys. So enjoy the episode. Thank you to Hammer Nutrition, Sufferfest Beer, 
and Tommy Burns Charity, Bigger Than the Trail. Big supporters and, and Patreon supporters, I truly appreciate you guys. We're going to have Cat on, actually, um, for the Tahoe Rim 100 miler that she just finished recently for a race recap. And she is going to start us off with a Patreon only episode that will, you know, the Patreon supporters will be well aware of. So thank you guys. Enjoy the episode and don't forget to enjoy your training. I'm joined again by a friend of the show, Brian Frank. He is the founder and CEO of Hammer Nutrition. Brian, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Enjoying a nice uh, summer day in Whitefish, Montana. I'm I'm glad to have you back on. It feels like it's been a long time since we uh, last spoke, and I really enjoyed talking last time. You know, learning more about the history of Hammer Nutrition, and you know, we dove into kind of how some of the products were made and that sort of process. And I really wanted to take some time and walk through. Some scenarios with fueling, hydration, and just because that's a major part of ultra running. And if you get it wrong, I mean, you can finish your race a lot of times, but you're going to be miserable, or you might DNF. Um, which I've I've definitely had races where I've messed up my hydration and you know pulled the plug thinking I was injured, but it was really just severe you know muscle cramps and dehydration. So. Yeah, if, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to, to talk fueling and hydration and, and just go over as much as we can if, if you're okay with that. Absolutely. Happy to do it. So I'm, I'm just thinking when you hit taper, you've kind of, you put in the training and at this point, you know, hopefully you can take that and apply it to the race day, but let's start with tapering. I mean... I don't I don't do a huge amount different other than maybe I'm not as hungry because I'm not you know putting in as many miles during a taper um, but how how should we frame this up just looking at you know the first I'd say the week prior to you know that big event or two weeks prior sure um, I yeah I think that's a good place to start you know thinking about your a race or one of your big important races for the year um, it's probably going to be hot and or humid. Um, so you're definitely going to employ a taper in the week or more beforehand. Um, but especially if you're traveling to the race, what to do and what not to do in the three to four days, you know, the 72, 96 hours before, um, you know, that can make or break your event. Um, as much as the fueling and how many calories you try to consume of what kind, and um, how much fluids and things during the race. Um, if you get to the starting line and you've already completely messed up your taper or you know rest period in the days prior, um, you know you're you're already starting <laughs> starting essentially like you know hopping on one foot. Um, so um, we see this just so universal. And I don't know if it's if it's common sense or people trying to be commonsensical um, or or thinking that this is just what they should do. But um, we generally see people making the mistake of significantly increasing calories, fluid and especially sodium in that, you know, three days, you know, you got a big race on Saturday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. 
Um, they're trying to super hydrate um, and, you know, make sure they're not dehydrated and they're, you know, maybe seeking salty foods. And even if you're not, just by nature, the fact that you're eating in a restaurant um, and not home cooking, your sodium intake is going to increase dramatically. Um, and then you couple that with, you know, this carbo loading idea, you know, sitting down and eating two or three plates of food of one form or another, be it p traditional pasta or something gluten-free, quinoa and whatever. Um, so that by the time we get to race day, our body is so just completely upside down with trying to deal with this sudden wash of excess fluids coming in, this sudden flood of excess sodium and digesting and processing all these extra calories. Um, so we want people to do none of that. Well, I'm, I'm trying to picture, so excess sodium, uh, you know, in that buildup, if you, you're hitting up a restaurant because you're traveling to this big race, is that just going to retain water? Is that, I mean, is that going to like, what, what are the negative kind of repercussions of, having that excess sodium in the buildup during that last 72 hours before your race? Well, again, if, if water retention was in fact the only bad thing that happened from consuming copious amounts of sodium in the days leading up to an event, if that was, if that was all that happened, that actually wouldn't be that bad. Um, but the problem is that just the opposite happens. Um, is that after a short period of, of water retention or bloating or edema, then the body starts flushing. Okay. You have to flush all this excess fluid out. And when you do that indiscriminately, you're also flushing out your, your minerals, excess sodium as well as needed sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium. It's all going out the window. It's all getting peed out. It's all coming out of your perspiration. That's how the body normalizes mineral levels when it's faced with an overload situation, which is what we're really talking about. We're not talking about, you know, giving your body much needed critical electrolytes. No, 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 no. We're, we're talking about, you know, needing two or three grams a day of sodium chloride and people consuming 15 and 20 grams a day in the days leading up to an event. I mean, yeah, it's a huge, huge issue. I mean, uh, we could we could probably have a whole episode just on that issue alone, um, you know, with standard American diet and whatnot. Tell me, why, why should I not sign up for that pasta dinner ticket that's only five bucks? It's, you know, the night before the race. A lot of races still have this going. I mean, yeah. I mean, what, I wouldn't. Why I wouldn't not sign up? Okay. But let me just say, okay, the opposite of this overloading the body syndrome we're talking about that we still see. I mean, today, at you know races this weekend, you you can talk to the preponderance of athletes will say this is what they did. Um, so instead of trying to massively in, and suddenly increase fluid intake and sodium intake and calorie intake. Do just like what you said before we got on the air, which is to just maintain constant and steady intake. The fact that you're tapering and you're significantly reducing your caloric and fluid expenditures, that's going to give you all of the loading or storing effect that your body wants or can actually do, deal with. 
So you just, again, the whole idea should always be do as few things differently on race day um, or in the days leading up to a race as you do in your daily life. So if you habitually consume, you know, 60 to 70 ounces of fresh water a day, okay, in the days leading up to the event, consume that much. You probably should be consuming more, but two or three days before an event is not the time to make that decision and then suddenly increase your fluid intake by 30 or 50% or more. Um, same thing with sodium. Keep it light. Just keep it constant. Try to eat as like you normally do. And like you said, if you go to a restaurant, um, you know, you order your protein grilled and all your sauces on the side. So if you're getting a steak and a baked potato and a salad for dinner, for instance, okay, you know, steak grilled dry seasoning or sauce on the side, same with your potato and your salad dressing. You know, you can make your own oil and vinegar without adding salt. You can put a little bit of, you know, pepper or whatever on your potato, do whatever you want. But at least that way you can control how much of that sodium you're going to get. Great. That's interesting. And I mean, am I wrong? I typically will have a pretty solid breakfast and lunch in the day before, uh, like a big event. For some reason, sweet potato fries is like my routine on on that front. But am I actually essentially eating for the race the day before the race? Like, how important is breakfast and lunch, and maybe even dinner? Um, going into that, that big day. And I mean, a lot of, a lot of it, honestly, I mean, it sounds kind of gross, but, you know, making sure the bathroom routine is down prior to the race start. Um, but in terms of like, you know, my body utilizing those calories, do, does it hold on to calories for 24, 48 hours going in? Not really, Rob. I mean, um, you know, there's, we have, if, as long as we cover the outlier, as long as we cover that one in 100 runners, the, the, the ectomorph or hard gainer, you know, the super lean, typically a male yeah. that's three or 4% body fat maximum. They eat continuously and they can't gain weight to save their life. Um, okay. That person again, they already know from personal experience. I mean, this is, that's the type of runner I'll tell them if you're going out for a 30-minute jog after dinner, take calories with you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But but exclusive of that person, for the rest of us, we have enough calories on board to run a hundred miles, no problem. If we let our body get to it and we don't busy our body digesting all this food and processing it and trying to decide what to do with it and everything else. So in answer to your question, you know, eating a solid breakfast and lunch on, you know, day before a race, not a big deal. But again, I mean, in, on a typical day of the week, if I had a big breakfast and a big lunch, I would probably just be having like a salad for dinner. Yeah. Um, and so the same is true. I mean, personally, like you said, as far as the intestines and we know that they're going to get emptied in the morning due to nerves and everything else. So I try not to fill my intestines in the 24 hours prior to an event. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what other, do you have any other like maybe points 
on what's important with fueling and hydration in the taper mode, just because we'll move on to maybe race day morning. Yeah. Um, well, I would say one thing that I that I that we also see people getting concerned about is um, night before the race. You know, you've got the races start Saturday morning, 7 a.m. or something like that. Um, and they're worried about sleep and rest and getting to bed early and everything on Friday night. Um, and I don't know about you, but I mean, even after, you know, 30 plus years of going through the routine, um, I still barely sleep two winks on race night. Oh, really? Uh, and if I, if I do, it's just, you know, an hour or two here and kind of dozing, but not really feeling like a normal night's sleep. At any rate, the point is, is that we've learned from experience and through science that your important sleep for really for rest and the final bit of recovery and everything else is two nights before. That I've noticed. I, I totally agree with that. So this is why if you, know, you got, your, got your race on thir- on Saturday. I mean, make a point of planning Thursday night so that you've got a good eight, ten hours in bed. You're not running around or traveling and, you know, arriving someplace at midnight, you know, and, all, and doing all this logistic stuff on Thursday night. Uh, that's your critical night for a good night's sleep. Um, and then the next night, because, again, a lot of people, we're going to get to this in a minute, race morning, they got a race start at 7 a.m. Uh, they want to get up at, you know, 4 o'clock, 3.30 and have breakfast. Yeah. So if you up late the night before, that's going to be more of a problem. And I don't want to spend too much time, but the only other kind of notable thing I've just personally found is reducing life stress the week going into the into the race. And I mean, reducing just life stress in general during training blocks, you know, reduces injury and all that sort of thing. But for me, my races go a lot better if I'm relaxed the whole week going into the race and let my body be physically stressed, you know, during that race, as opposed to, you know, personal stresses, which sometimes you can't help. But if you make an effort to, to try to reduce those stresses, try to plan ahead on when you're picking your kids up, who's doing that, you know, this, that sort of thing. Um, it, it actually adds up during race day for me, at least. Yeah, I hope. I totally agree, Rob. I think you're spot on. And I would say even if you can go even further than that, you know, include part of, as part of your taper, a massage yeah, uh, or two and or meditation, you know, sitting aside 30 minutes, you know, twice a day, you know, in the couple of days leading up to it, especially again, if you're away at a destination, you know, people are oftentimes milling around. They don't have a lot to do, um, you know. Go find someplace quiet, especially if you're in a majestic area. Um, you know, do 30, 60 minutes of meditation. Yeah, whatever you can do to, to uh, like you said, to kind of push out the things that give us the stress and yeah. uh, let your body focus. Because as you well know, you know, so much of the ultra game is mental. Yeah, totally. And I'm having like concerns here I'm, I'm just thinking about ccc being on an international flight and then basically jumping on the start line so <laughs> oh man i have a lot of planning to do coming up here shortly um so let's talk race morning you put in the training you're feeling 
as good as you can feel, you know, for race morning, that alarm going off at 4.30 in the hotel room or waking up from your, you know, your, your tent or wherever you are. Um, how am I thinking, how should I think about fueling and hydration, you know, the second that alarm goes off? Well, uh, this again is an area where we see people really putting a lot of emphasis on that pre-race meal, um, operating under the assumption that, Hey, that's going to be like make or break for energy today during this, you know, 12, 16, 24 hour expedition I'm going to be on. Right. Um, it is, it's almost overemphasized, right? Yeah. Because like I was saying, it's the same as the meals the day before. I mean, okay, we want to keep a steady amount of calories coming in on a daily basis. Um, but when we have several hundred thousand calories of free fatty acids in our system at any one time that our body could and should be using preferentially as our primary source of energy during these events, um, the real trick is is let's just not overburden the body with all these processes with digestion and you know everything that goes with it in terms of blood flow and and hormone levels and insulin levels and things like that so at the end of the day or in the beginning of the day early in the morning i tell people look i don't personally i would never sacrifice sleep for food um if i'm camping or i'm somewhere near race start and I can stay in bed until like an hour before race start on a morning on a morning race. You know I'm doing that, <laughs> um, and I'm not gonna and I'm not gonna eat because again, especially during like a 50k, 50 miler, 100 miler, you've got plenty of time to eat out there on the trail. So I personally, I'll two hours, you know, just from reading about marathons and all that sort of thing. Um, and personal training experience, if I eat food like an hour before I go run, sometimes depending on that meal, it can cause, you know, my stomach to get a little bit upset. So mm-hmm. I found just out of routine, I'll have something like a hammer bar, maybe two hours pre-race. And then maybe I'll, I'll throw in like a hammer gel, you know, half an hour before the race just to get one in. So I don't forget it, you know, within that first hour of, of running. Um, is that, is that kind of overkill or, I mean, what, Rob, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I, I love you and I, um, and I know that you're, you know, you're a big advocate and, um, so I hate to say it, but yeah, that's really, we're, we're getting into that window here where, Unfortunately, as much as, you know, we would like to think that maybe introducing 80 or 100 calories from a gel 30 minutes before the start might like top off the tank. Yeah, um, that's, that actually is kind of what I, I think. Yeah. And really what it's doing is, is, is preventing us from burning fat yeah. when we first start out. Um, so because when, the, when you take that gel, it's necessarily elevating insulin levels as well. When you start exercising in a state of elevated insulin and blood sugar, you're not really able to burn a lot of fat. Okay. And, and this is why, and, and again, what we've seen, people historically will even tell you, you know, they're like, I don't really start burning fat and, you know, really kind of feeling like I'm getting that added energy until hour and a half in, yeah. you know, yeah. two hours. Well, that's when, because they ate 
at an inopportune time prior to the start, their body was forced to use primarily stored muscle and liver glycogen as energy for the first hour, hour and a half. And it wasn't until those levels just started to get so low that the body has no choice but to force the fatty acid metabolism and the fat burning process to get started. Okay. However, if we just resist the urge to help our body with more calories, and again, the two-hour mark for eating, that's going to be, I would say, that's going to be your absolute um, minimum amount of time that you would want to be eating anything solid between that, you know, eating and the race starting. Three hours is ideal, but okay. as I said, you know, a 7 a.m. race, I'm not getting up unless I would already naturally be up because let's say I've got a long way to travel to get to the event. If I would already be up by 4 and I could eat a, me a decent meal between 4 and 4.30, I would do that because I definitely don't want to be sitting around for three-plus hours, no calories. But absent that, you know, you go two and a half hours, two hours is, is full stop on calories because at the end of the day, what we want to have happening is when we first start running, we want our stomach to be empty, our body to be done digesting food so that insulin levels and blood sugar levels are not peaked and so that we can start burning fat right away. Interesting. That yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, if I if I go on a run after work or whatever, I'm not putting anything in and those always seem to go, you know, fine for an hour, hour and a half or whatever. Um, I should probably not change too much up. I mean, so no, and, definitely don't, don't, don't do this. You know, your body is, is adaptable and it, believe it or not, it, it adapts as best as it can, even to, let's say less than optimal fueling practices. Um, yeah. but in training, you know, again, replicate a race day, you know, let's say you, you know, your big event is a 6am start. Okay, so plan one of your long training runs coming up, plan to start at 6 a.m., and plan to simulate your race activities and experience for 24 or 48 hours prior. And that's again, great. That's awesome advice. That's, that's truly awesome. I haven't thought about actually simulating, like, getting up on the weekend at 6 a.m. exactly, like, when the start gun would go off and... Uh, that's great advice. I haven't thought about that. I've simulated yeah. the the elevation gain, and I've simulated, you know, on a per mile basis, and tried to simulate the heat and maybe the altitude as much as possible and the terrain. But um, in terms of simulating the actual, you know, fueling and hydration aspect and the tapering into it and what I'm going to eat. That's that's really interesting. So, I mean, the only other pre-race routine that I have is I throw in fully charged. It's it's a, a new product that you guys have, have uh, I think, came out last year, maybe, end of last year. Um, yeah. For whatever reason, I've, I've taken it on some runs, and it doesn't make me jittery at all, and it kind of, it just makes me feel like I have that extra step for whatever reason and i also i always use the anti-fatigue and endurance the the bcaa caps and so morning of a race one hour before i'll take fully charged maybe i'm in my car with like 
you know, a water bottle with fully charged in it and I'll take anti-fatigue and the BCAA caps. Is that okay to do? That's a great idea, Rob. Okay. <laughs> um, so, um, like, like we said, we want to get the, any, if we're going to have breakfast or if we're going to consume calories before the start of an event, let's get it done three hours, two and a half, minimum two hours beforehand. Then in that two hour window, um, you know, we, we did c- come out with the new fully charged with our non-stimulant pre-exercise igniter. Um, it has things that help increase circulation and blood flow, mental acuity, um, just kind of helps you get focused and kind of get into the moment um, and get that blood flowing so that, um, you know, you're ready to start running, do whatever you want when the race go, when the race starts. And then we also just came out with our new Cola Fizz which does have caffeine in it, it has 20 milligrams. Um, so if a person wanted to make a little DIY energy drink, they could do a yeah. serving fully charged, a tab of the cola fizz in a bottle of water, and keep in mind, that doesn't have calories in it, so it's not triggering a digestion process, it's not elevating blood sugar and insulin levels. So if somebody wanted to sip on that in the hour or two prior to race start, um, and again, taking the supplements of choice, like you mentioned, the branch chain amino acids, the BCAA caps, those just help. Same with the anti-fatigue. Those help with heavy muscles, heavy legs, you know, from pneumonia buildup and from tissue breakdown. Um, so those are great for, for runners to take beforehand. Um, and that's what I was going to say also is if you're doing a 100-mile trail race, you know, you can be taking the anti-fatigue caps right alongside your enduro lights. Um, same thing with the fully charged. I'm taking a serving of fully charged about every second or third bottle on yeah. all yeah. on all events, um, and finding that that's especially mentally, it just it freshens up the mind and gets me focused again on on my pace and what I got to do. I say uh, I save it for the night hours. Um, I'll throw it in with like a lemon lime fizz, and uh, for whatever reason at nighttime, it's it's helped me a lot. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> but I haven't I haven't taken a cola fizz yet with it. That's like a cherry cola almost. That, that's right. yeah. <laughs> I'll have to try that coming up here for Never Summer. And then of course with the Enduro Lights Extreme Powder, um, you know that gives you another option for people who are not so keen on doing the hourly supplements or taking you know getting their electrolytes in in capsule form. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also just top your bottles, um, and it also the minerals dissolve completely. So if a person's using a hydration vest and running a bladder, um, you can put the Endurolite's Extreme powder directly into the bladder. It doesn't leave a residue or, or mess up the bladder. Cool. So a lot of different options. And so, okay, I'm I'm at the start. You know, the race director says, "Get out of here." Um, which a lot of ultra running start lines are very melodramatic. Um, I'm, I'm 45 minutes in, let's say this is a, let's just picture never summer cause that's coming up for me or, or whatever race. I mean, it's cause there are adjustments that I make on the fly. Just, you know, listening to my body closely. Uh, I mean, never summers at altitude. So let's start with that. I mean, how how should I adjust my fueling and hydration and everything else 
based on altitude? Well, um, it's obviously you're going to, at altitude, as we mentioned before, in the heat, it's going to be a dry heat, so you're evaporating. That perspiration is evaporating from your breathing, from your skin, so quickly um, they, and you oftentimes don't even need to urinate because you're just, you're losing so much through perspirate, through, um, respiration and perspiration. So you have to really stay on top of your fluid intake. And what that means is specifically not over consuming. So now that we've got to the starting line and the race is going to start. Okay. Now we have to, you know, get to the second most critical aspect um, we've, we've gotten through the three days leading up. We haven't overeaten, we haven't oversalted, and we definitely have not overhydrated. So race morning, our urine color is normal. It's slightly yellow. It's not clear. It's not dark yellow. Everything's good. So, so now it's a, it's a balance, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so now let's just talk about the first three hours. Okay. The first three hours of your event. This is when everybody feels good, okay? Everybody's like, woohoo, the miles are clicking down easy. We're look, look at the scenery, it's awesome. And as you started to say, people will get 45, 60, 75 minutes into a run before realizing that they haven't eaten or drank a single thing. Bad move, really bad move. Um, so let's rewind back to the start. Okay. Again, we've been fueling light. We had a light breakfast two to three hours before or we or nothing at all. Right. So we've been waiting. I've been waiting for the gun to go off so I can start eating. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, and I'm not going to wait 30, 45 minutes or more. I mean, if I'm using a, you know, concentrated bottle of perpetuum, let's say, um, I'm taking my first sip of perpetuum five, 10 minutes after the gun goes off. Yep. And I'm going to start and I'm going to keep doing something every 15 to 20 minutes until I stop. Now what that something is that might be a sip of the calories of the perpetuum concentrate bottle. Um, that might be taking a couple of electrolytes that might be taking a sip of plain water, balancing out the three. Um, but I'm going to do one of those three things and again, a lot of people, I'll have them if they just set a reoccurring alarm on their heart rate monitor or their power meter or whatever, you know, just set an alarm to go off every 20 minutes or, or 15, whatever you prefer. Mm -hmm. And just every time that goes off, okay, I got to do something. What do I want to do? Do I feel like I need more calories? Do I feel like I need more fluid? You know, do I need more electrolytes? Is it time to take some branch chain amino acids and some anti-fatigue caps? Because my legs are starting to get heavy and feel like lead. But do something. Yeah, I, I've made it almost like a habit to just sip on Perpetuum every 15 minutes, like regardless. And honestly, it it becomes hard maybe like late at night just to remember to like go through the aid station you know, get out the perpetuum from the drop bag and fill it up, that sort of thing. Um, right. But just out of habitual, like, you know, training, I don't even think about it. Sometimes I actually will trickle in more than that. I, I noticed at Leadville, 
for the 50 mile race like i i actually was taking down Perpetuum a little bit faster um, but I felt comfortable doing that like every 10 minutes instead of 15 because, uh, well, first of all, the altitude, like you're saying, like your heart rate's elevated, like you're just burning calories a little faster. But then the, the gain of the course, having 8,000 feet of gain, you, you seem to burn more calories with mountain racing. Is that what you would advise taking in a, a more calories in like a typical race? I would say, you know, that that you've got to take that on a case by case basis, because theoretically, um, the higher heart rate that you're going to be experiencing, um, higher levels of higher level of intensity, as it were, um, you know, spending more time at or near or above your anaerobic threshold, that would normally reduce the amount of calories that you could comfortably process. Yeah. Um, and generally I tend to focus, my thinking is exclusively on how many calories I can comfortably process. I, I really ex purposely kind of push out of my mind how many calories I'm burning. Um, Interesting. Because, because at the end of the day, I have no control over that. I mean, sure, I could just lower the intensity down, but the point is, is again, when we have you know, depending on who you listen to, you can say 200,000, a half a million calories available for, for energy needs on demand if we let our body get to it. Yeah. You, does it really matter um, if we're taking in 150 or 180 calories an hour? Um, so I tend to, and again, this is where the biofeedback that you were mentioning, you know, and, and kind of seeing how you're feeling. Um, is important because the tendency and the temptation may be to increase caloric intake as a way of dealing with the increased fatigue and muscle burn and everything that and lung burn that people tend to f experience at altitude. Um, and it's that's similar to one of the my last caveats about ultra runs in general about not lingering at aid stations. If a person is generally not feeling good. Um, not feeling, you know, a lot of energy and having trouble maintaining their pace. Generally, adding more calories in will almost never resolve that problem. Interesting. So, again, there is the rare instance where somebody, you know, if somebody says, you know, yeah, I've been running for three hours and I've had 50 calories. Um, okay, probably, yeah, that person, <laughs> they, they need more calories, to, you know, in order to feel better. Um, but typically when we see people that are, you know, doing a 50 or 100 miler at a, you know, at a non, let's say a non-winning pace, um, they get to the later aid stations and, you know, the wheels are starting to come off and the, they linger at the aid station. Just, you know, one more cracker, one more cup of soup, just a little more that'll, you know, then I'll feel better. They leave the aid station, you know, stomach full, just, you know even worse off than they started. And I got to ask you, aid station food, um, I don't want to get sidetracked, but <laughs> I always throw watermelon in my stomach. Like almost, I have to say like every aid station, um, you know, from the halfway point to the finish of every ultra I've ever done, if they have watermelon, it just has like the, the volume, like it just works for me. I don't know why it works. What aid station foods, like, 
from your vantage point would you recommend? I know it's different for everyone and a lot of times it's just like look at the aid station and your body almost tells you what you need. But you've you've taken such a scientific approach. Like how do you see aid stations? Um, and why does watermelon make me feel so much better? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're you're not wrong. Aid stations can be can be minefields for sure. Um, you know, with the cookies and the brownies and the uh, and the uh, bowls full of Skittles and M and M's and things like that. Um, I usually tell people, look, you know, the aid station should be part of your overall start to feel finish fueling approach. So if you're accounting for calories to come in at the aid stations and you would need to be doing this by saying, hey, I'm getting pretty hungry. I'm going to want to have some soup and crackers and stuff and a watermelon at this next aid station. Probably be a good idea to switch to plain water and stop the calorie intake for at least 30 to 60 minutes prior to that arriving at that aid station. Once you get to the aid station, I recommend staying with the savory things that they offer, pretzels, crackers, bagels, um, chicken noodle soup or you know vegetable broth or something like that if it's cold. Um, just stay away from the sugar. Um, it's just it's the same as it is any other time. That fleeting that fleeting moment or two of enjoyment when you know going down is um, pales when you have to deal with the 30, 60, 90 minutes of seesawing energy levels and malaise and, you know, queasiness from insulin spikes and things like that that you have to deal with when you get back out on trail. So the the flat soda that's, like, notorious at ultra runs, like, I've never actually had it. I mean, I know it sounds probably funny to the listener because that's, like, the most, like, notable thing at aid stations is just the flat Coca-Cola um, and how amazing it is. I, I haven't had it yet. Yeah, well, just going just back to your, shock your, my system. <laughs> well, going, let me just backtrack one second to your fruit question. Cause I digressed and didn't, didn't get to that. Okay. So watermelon, watermelon and apples are two of my aid station fruits that I think are, are, are not that bad. You can, you can get away with a modicum, you know, having a couple of pieces. Yep. If you sit there at every aid station and gorge, obviously that's not going to go well, but Point being is that with the watermelon, you've got a relatively low sugar content, high water content, um, and the sugar is still in its natural form, which means that it does not have the insulin effect that it would coming from a factory sugar. Okay. So you can, it's you know, I wouldn't say it's ideal, but certainly two or three pieces in the scheme of things, and especially if I you said, okay, it's like a couple pieces of watermelon or a handful of Skittles. Yeah. Um, or a couple pieces of watermelon or a brownie. It's normally salted too. I'm... Yeah, salted and a little chili on top is even is even yummy. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> but uh, going back to um, your other question, which was with regard to the the soda. Oh, yeah. I mean that that's super old school. You know, flat Coke or Mountain Dew. <laughs> and we, you know, I tell people, look. If you want to go on to that sugar train, do it at the end and just know that it's a one-way street. <laughs> once once you start riding that sugar train, you got to keep the good times rolling. And that means you got to keep more <laughs> sugar coming in like every 10 minutes. Okay? Oof. Because at 15 or 20, those blood sugar levels are going to start dropping like a rock. 
So this is, it's, you know, mid race, you know, and you still got several more hours on trail and it's, you know, somebody's like, yeah, you want some Coke? That's not the time to do it. <laughs> I mean, you- it was, I, I hit sugar so hard at the very last aid station to run rabbit run as like a hail Mary essentially. And it didn't, it didn't work. I, I had been depleted probably for hours prior. So, um, that's the idea. I mean, that should be, it should be your bomb to, you know, just to get you through the last, say, you know, five to 10 K. Yeah. Interesting. I, I've never thought about actually utilizing it like during a certain point in the race. So that's, that's really cool to, to think about. And so if I'm just chugging along, you know, I'm doing a, let's say I'm doing a hundred K and I'm, I'm hitting mile 40, uh, I hit a gel, I I do a hammer gel probably every 45 minutes to an hour. If it's easier terrain and I'm feeling really great, I don't want to kind of mess with that. So I'll wait an hour and do a hammer gel. And I continually trickle in uh, fizz. So I'm balancing electrolytes separately and I'm trickling in the liquid calories with perpetuum. And again, I, I do a gel... A lot of times a tropical one with caffeine is uh, what hits the spot, but 45 minutes to an hour, and that's pretty much kind of standard operating procedure for me. I mean, am I doing that correctly? Yeah, I mean, I, there's certainly there's a once once you get that far down the trail, then you get into a lot of different options. Uh, I mean, by that by you know by that many hours in, your body is definitely burning fat. And burning a lot of it so depending on what you've been doing you know at aid stations with savory foods you know um, I personally I find myself and I usually tend to tell people to do the same is you know use the perpetuum early on use that for the first four six eight hours and then you know start switching it up with the gels and other things like that when you would start to get some flavor fatigue yeah. Um, and I also, I like to switch the flavors of Perpetuum. You know, yep. the Caffe Latte and the Strawberry are my two favorites. So, you know, I'll do a three or four hour bottle of one, switch out to the other flavor for the next three or four hours. Um, and again, I'm, I tend to like to have plain water. So you can definitely rotate and manage a Fizz bottle and a Perpetuum bottle. Um, but for me, I just I, I usually make sure I always have a bottle of plain water on board. And that way, like you were saying, at altitude or because of intensity, if you start drinking that perpetuum faster and you find yourself a little bit ahead yeah. uh, on calories, no worries. You know, I, I mean, I, for Leadville, I killed a whole bottle of perpetuum probably within the first hour. And that was that was supposed to last me probably – it was probably the first 45 minutes and it's supposed to last me like two hours. Um, and it actually, it worked out great. So, I mean, the, the last, uh, the last part, I just didn't feel like eating. So I blame myself and not anything beyond that, but you know, eating at altitude, you start feeling like, uh, like I, I don't really want to do anything right now. I'm feeling awfully lethargic and, um, So it sounds like trickling those in early. I mean, naturally, that's always what works out for me. I always go with 
chocolate flavor and uh and by the end of the the day um if i do have a crew they keep me going with that and it seems to work okay let's talk about the same aspect with hydration so um when i put a fizz electrolyte you know tab in my water bottle and i'm sipping on that throughout the day I'm I'm also balancing electrolytes with caps individually, um, in addition to the BCAA and the um, I'm trying to remember what the name is of of the other product. The anti fatigue caps. Yeah, the anti fatigue that I'm taking probably every taking one of those each like half an hour I'd say. Um, how do you recommend I go about? Uh, you know, with my hydration process, if I am at that mile 40 mark of a hundred K and I, you know, I still have over 20 miles to go. Yeah. Well, again, this is where, you know, you're definitely already, um, you know, dealing with a certain amount of dehydration at that point, if it's been, you know, if it's been a warm day. Um, and so the temptation is to start consuming more. Um, and so this is where it gets to be really important to maintain your measured fluid intake. And again, whether it's a bottle of fizz, whether it's some, some fluid donation from a mixture of other calories, let's say, you know, a perpetuum bottle or a heat bottle or plain water, you know, we're still talking 160 pound male maxing out at about 26, 28 ounces an hour total fluid intake that they can swallow. Yeah. Okay. And again, you can drink more than that. It's going to go into your bladder. You're going to pee it out. You're, it's going to accelerate your dehydration and your mineral loss. So this is in these situations, this is where you want to keep your wits about you and keep your fluid intake at that measured limit and then do other things to mitigate the heat stress. You can be, you know, pulling in at aid stations, and a lot of times they'll have ice buckets with towels and stuff like that. You can put one over your head or drape it on your neck. You can be pouring water over your head. You can even be in taking water into your mouth, swish it around, spit it out. Um, That's interesting. I, I fall in the category of probably overdoing it, actually, and, and peeing out uh, a lot of those essentials. That's interesting. Hmm. Which again, um, Rob, that was, you know, that was why we were, you know, why I was eager to get back with you on this because um, there's just, there's so many of these little nuances, these little things that so many people do, um, even who are well-read, who are well-educated and who have had a modicum of success. Um, you know, we started working with a, a master's runner from California. It's the current master's mile record holder and 5K and so forth. She had all, she has all kinds of national championships and so on and so forth. Jen Bayless is her name, by the way, if you want to look her up um, or anybody else does. Point is, you know, 47 years old, incredibly successful runner. Um, she was eating like, you know, she was eating an hour before her races. She was having some gel or a drink or something like that 30 minutes beforehand. Um, she was having a snack before bed at night. Just by changing these the cadence and the type and type and timing of calories that she's taking in, um, she's already in short order 
set a new personal best for both mile and 5k. Interesting. Nice. So and most importantly, she's saying she just feels better when she's running. You know, it just feels easier. She doesn't feel like she has to work as hard. The pace just seems to come with ease. And that's what we want. That's most important for us middle of the pack, back of the pack crushers that are out there just to have fun. And it's just us against the course. Um, but, you know, obviously it affects those elite guys, too. So my only other question, I've, I've come across a time where, because I only use 12-ounce bottles on left and right of my vest, and when I'm in those hot situations and I, you know, I, I've taken down all of the fizz water mix in one of the bottles and I'm like, I'm thirsty. Like, I know I'm hitting dehydration level. I'll, I'll pull out the Perpetuum bottle and I'll take... Uh, probably more than I should be taking. I'll I'll drink half the bottle of Perpetuum because I'm dehydrated. Like, is that is that acceptable? Because we all have those times where we're in the middle of nowhere. The next aid station's four miles away, and uh, you know you got to get some water in you. On a triage basis, I mean, you got no choice. You know, you just finished off your hydration bottle and you're left with your calorie bottle. So, you know, in that situation, rather than doing nothing, sure, drink some Perpetuum. Um, but again, this is where this is where that third bottle comes in, and, and, and this is where I, like, again, honest times, honestly, to be to totally truthfully, truthful with you guys, I rarely ever use Fizz. Okay. I have no problem swallowing capsules myself. I'm perfectly comfortable doing it, and I'm taking them every 30 to 60 minutes anyways because I'm probably taking anti-fatigue and branched-chain aminos. Mm -hmm. So I try to just uncomplicate my life just that little bit so that I'm getting all of my electrolytes in precise measured capsule dosages when I want them. And then, so just like your two 12-ounce bottles on your vest, I would have one of those plain water, one of those perpetuum, um, and again, in that situation, drink the water, and then um, don't probably not, hopefully that's not a multi-hour flask of perpetuum. If it is, you might be in trouble. <laughs> no, it's normally, um, it's like one serving, so I think that's what, an hour? I can't remember, two hours? Yeah, that's about 260 calories, and... You know, if you had half of that in, in six or eight ounces of fluids because you just needed to get to the next aid station, that would not be the end of the world at all. But again, yeah. if you get to that next aid station, you don't, you're not going to sit there starting chugging solid food <laughs> and or consuming a gel and a bunch more calories. No, you're probably going to get to that aid station, drink two cups of plain water, refill your 12-ounce flask that yep. had the fizz in it with more plain water or fizz, top off the perpetuum bottle and head back out on that's, trail. That's exact. Well, and I'd have a piece of watermelon and then I'd be out as quickly as possible. That's exactly what I do. Actually. That's funny. Um, okay. So the day went okay. You know, I, I made it to the finish line. What's the first thing I should do when I cross the finish line from your perspective and you've invented a lot of this nutritional, you know, fuel and hydration and, you know, supplements, what's the first thing I should do when I cross the finish line other than, you know, get my, 
belt buckle or metal or whatever? Well, if this is really an A race, if this is a big race, we're talking the 50 mile or 100 mile or something like that. Um, you know, I would take personally, I take a couple more doses of electrolytes and anti fatigue because oh, okay. as, I've never as, thought about that. As we said, you know, we're probably dehydrated, we're definitely dehydrated. Um, and we may be a little low on, on electrolytes, probably not sodium, but, but magnesium, calcium, especially. Um, and we don't want to get those dreaded calf cramps, hamstring cramps, Oof, and, you know, two, three hours after the finish at dinner, you know, you go to put your legs under the table or whatever, and they lock up. <laughs> uh, so that's what, so like I say, I will, after I'm completely done, I'll still take two or three more electrolytes and durolites and two anti-fatigue. Um, and then that's when you get to have whatever sounds most appealing to you. If it's a hot fudge sundae, if it's a cheeseburger, if it's a pizza, um, if it's a quinoa salad with you know salmon on top, I mean, whatever floats your boat. Um, ostensibly, you're not planning on resuming training the next day. You're going to give yourself a few days to rest and recover. So you know, normal optimum recovery protocol would not apply here. So it's it's okay to have the finisher's beer that's so, I mean, okay. it's, it's part of the trail running community, essentially. Or two or three. Yes. Uh, nice. As I said, I mean, that's that's the time. What I, what I have a problem with is people who want to do that every day in training. <laughs> you know? Cel- yeah. Celebrate each training run. Yeah, I mean, like I every <laughs> we go for a run, we go have pizza and beer. <laughs> um, so, I'll be honest. Like, I'll be honest with you. Okay, so I I do not take BCAA or anything else, any other electrolytes coming through the finish line, unless like, you know, it was it was horribly something went wrong. I'll come through and I'll have recovery. Like I've I've just a lot of times my muscles will be hitting that that point of the day where like that's just it, it maybe i'm just dehydrated and maybe i just need electrolytes coming through the finish line but um i'll have recovery immediately like it's always in my drop bag at the finish line is that what's recommended is that what you think works especially if it's ice cold yeah um, you can't have warm recovery a lot of times oh. i mean that's again that's whatever sounds most appealing to you and yeah, I typically do the same thing because it's oftentimes, you know, with awards and waiting for other people to finish and so forth, it's going to be a while, you know, 30 minutes goes by, 40 minutes, an hour. Um, and especially if I have a beer on a, on a completely empty stomach, because after all, I'm trying to finish every event with my stomach exactly the way I started, bone dry. Interesting. Okay. Uh, because after all, what's the point of having excess calories in your stomach or being in the middle of trying to convert more when you just finished? I mean, let's let's talk more about the recovery process. So what's happening to my body? I just ran 50 miles, come through the finish line. You know, it's it's an exciting moment. And a lot of times I'll have to tear off a little coupon or something from my bib and hand it to someone and I'll, you know, go through the food line. Um, and, and typically I'm just thinking like I need some calories right now or I'm going to fall asleep or something to that effect. I mean, what's happening to my body and what's most ideal to 
what's like the healthy process for me going forward from that point? Well, as you said, you know, and if we did it, if we did it right, if we fueled light, you know, if we practice less is best from the day prior to the morning of and all through that 50 miler, when you get to the finish line, you between the endorphins um, and everything else, you should probably feel hollow. And yeah, like you want to inhale pretty much every calorie you can see. Um, and it just so happens that when you get to the conclusion of an event like this, this is when your body immediately goes into survival mode, which is, okay, we just survived this pretty hectic, pretty challenging um, activity. We better get ready in case we have to do it again soon. So that window, that recovery window is as wide open as it's ever going to get you know, a minute or two or three after you cross the finish line. Um, and again, optimal recovery. Absolutely. High quality protein, complex carbohydrates, um, full electrolyte profile. We have products like that. People make products that are specifically for that purpose. It can also be a meal. I mean, Hey, a chicken breast, you know, some pasta or rice or, you know, some sort of a grain and a big salad with some olive oil and vinegar and a liberal sprinkling of salt and pepper, that'll get, that'll get that factory running. That'll get that recovery machine going in high gear as well. And so those are, are necessary to repair the muscle damage. Is that essentially oh. what's taking place there? Is it recycling certain aspects of the, cause you understand the human body and all and all this stuff like much much better i have some experience like just how my legs feel but i don't you know truly understand on any kind of scientific level what's taking place well i i may not know a lot more than you um but the truth of the matter is is we have tissue damage um you've got oxidative stress um from all the energy expenditures um, cellular waste, metabolic byproducts that are clogging cell pathways. Um, you know, the blood is full of debris and toxins. Anti uh, antioxidants are needed to deal with all these free radicals that have been created. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's basically we're talking about kind of recovering and cleaning the bodies on a cellular level. So we're talking about muscle tissue repair, uh, liver and muscle glycogen synthesis, mineral levels coming back up. Um, yeah, we want to we want to do all of that stuff. We want to get the body back to homeostasis as quickly as possible, so that it can adapt the way it wants to to that workload and be ready to take more on. Um, so anything we can do to accelerate that recovery and adaptive process, um, that's when it's time for more intervention. Again, it's kind of funny. We've been talking this whole last, you know, hour plus of people intervening too much before and during a big race, um, and then oftentimes <laughs> not doing enough afterward to ensure recovery. Um, I mean, and if this is a national championship or if this is, you know, your last race of the season and, you know, poof, you're going on vacation, probably don't worry about recovery. But most of the time, you know, you're looking to get back to training as quickly as you can because you've got another race coming up in four, six, eight weeks. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, my last 
mention would be I I take Recoverite almost after every training run, and I throw coconut milk in, and a lot of times like half water, half coconut milk, and then I'll top it off with like some coffee, and and maybe even a little bit of ice and. That I mean, am I taking recovery too often? <laughs> it tastes uh, so freaking good. Um. <laughs> no, I mean honestly, you're you're not, Rob. The only time I would say that was too often was, you know, if you were in a situation where you're like sitting there drinking that recoverite shake at a meal. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that that hasn't happened yet. Okay, most, <laughs> so this so this is what I think what you've been getting at and trying to get me to elaborate on is for most people, whether it be a you know a long training run or an event, there usually is like up to an hour or more of slop of downtime after you're done mm-hmm. and before you actually get to sit down to eat a meal. And that's where you've what you've lost so much opportunity in terms of your body being so hungry, let's say, pun intended, yeah. for nutrients to start affecting its recovery and rebuilding process. Um, so, you know, if somebody wants to get into a habit of, you know, drinking a serving of recovery, doctored up or not, within, <laughs> let's say, 10 minutes of completing every you know, let's every training run or workout that lasts for an hour and a half to two hours or more, that would be a really good habit to get into. And I don't think we would worry about somebody overdoing that. And what is the ideal time? Like when, when is it too late? When is it, is it ever too early? It, it's, well, it's uh, never too early. I mean, literally, normally, um, you know, I come in, I take off my shoes I mix up Recoverite with ice, drink it down, and then finish getting undressed. Okay. Uh, that's my cadence. And then I go take a shower, and then, you know, if it's beer 30, fine. I've already had some protein and some calories, and everything's already going, and now, I, you know, I can have a beer. Sounds, sounds all too familiar right there. Um, no. <laughs> so I wanted to end on supplements, and I... I don't want this to come across as, you know, an infomercial. I'm just sharing with the listener what I personally use because I was in the same boat as a lot of you guys and I had no idea where to go. Like I truly was, I was totally clueless um, and I was taking, I can't even remember the vitamin, multivitamin, um, the the daily supplement of some sort, but I, I started using premium insurance caps uh, honestly, I read John Kelly, you know, searched out uh, a multivitamin that could keep up with his needs. And so I was like, hmm, I mean, John Kelly, it seems to be working for him. Like, I'll, I'll just check it out. And I started taking it and it seems to be working well for me. Um, how many of those should I take? Like, I, should I take them? Let's say if I'm working out hard one day and I have a rest day the next day, should it be the same increments or like how, how should I take that product? Well, um, you bring up a, you bring up a great uh, point and the premium insurance caps, you know, they're called insurance caps for a reason. I really do consider this to be your best form of health insurance. So the premium insurance caps is a daily 
multivitamin mineral supplement that has 54 different nutrients. So it has all your typical vitamins, minerals, plus a full amino acid profile, enzyme profile, all your bells and whistles, you know, your selenium and um, all this stuff. It has high calcium levels to qualify as a woman's formula or a prenatal formula, postnatal. Um, most importantly, it's scalable. All 54 nutrients are present in proportionate quantities in every single capsule. So to your point, Rob, um, you're not stuck with this one-size-fits-all, you know, like most vitamin packets. They've got that little vitamin E football, and they've got the bigger mineral caplet, and then they've got a, you know, some other tablet that you have to take. Um, so I vary my intake of the premium insurance caps pretty much daily, and it has to do with um, the quality of my diet, the amount of training I'm doing, you know, the time of year is terms of like, is it cold and flu season? Yeah. You know, in Montana up here, I mean, I just, I take an extra one or two a day in the fall and winter months just because, you know, there usually is always somebody in the office who's sick. Um, so I range my dosage between about three and five capsules a day. Um, the seven capsule daily dose, that for me is like, you know, that's a person who's training three to five hours um, that day, um, and, or someone whose diet is exceptionally poor, um, you know, or you've been traveling and training and are feeling kind of run down. But okay. I generally, like I said, I usually fluctuate between three and five a day. And the point for the premium insurance caps is for people to really be aware of this balanced diet myth. Okay. We've been told if you eat a balanced diet, you don't need to take vitamins and minerals. This is just patently false. Nobody knows what a balanced diet is. There's never been any study or research published that showed if you eat this much of this or that or the other thing, you'll be balanced and you'll get the RDA of all your vitamins and minerals. Um, it's, so it's just this, it's this kind of this fantasy utopia that doesn't exist. Um, so the reality is, is that 90%, I mean, and you can even call it you know, higher than that, Essentially, every American who does not take a quality multivitamin supplement on a daily basis is not eating a balanced diet and is dealing with chronic vitamin and or mineral deficiencies. So when I fly over to do CCC, I should up – because I – honestly, I mean just real world, I'll take three in the morning. Yeah, occasionally my toddler will be out of control in the morning and I, I just – don't get to uh, take the multivitamins, but um, that's pretty rare. I'll, I'll typically just do three of those, and then um, I found after we talked last, I actually looked into CoQ10, and then I found your your Race Cap Supreme. Um, how many of those is that? Like a similar dosage, and like how does the the CoQ10 help me? And and then I'll just kind of you know, finish with what other supplements should I be thinking about as an ultra runner? Okay. I'll try to, boy, I'll try to wrap that up quick. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Rob. I'm super stoked that you found the CoQ10 and race caps because after all, that's the supplement that started this whole thing. Um, I, it was cool hearing the history about that. The, right, list, I, the listener can go back and check that episode out. But yeah. So, um, you know, coenzyme Q10, 
is a critically involved micronutrient in the body's production of ATP. So every single cell in our body, we're making ATP. CoQ10 is kind of like the spark plug in that engine, in that mitochondrial factory, if you will. It declines in our body with age, and it's not generally something that you can get from eating a certain food. It's not like vitamins or minerals where, you know, you can just eat more broccoli and get a bunch of calcium um, or something. Um, you have to synthesize it in the body or take it supplementally. So um, for me, the, you know, coenzyme Q10 is basically an over 30 supplement for athletes, meaning if you're an athlete and you leave a fit, active lifestyle over 30 years of age, you should be taking CoQ10 on par with, you know, say 100 to 300 milligrams a day. Um, and it's and we are and we're going to start doing we're, this uh, series coming up next year on all these masters athletes who are now in their 70s and 80s who have been taking CoQ10 through race caps um, for 30 years or more. Wow! And what they're and still you know winning 5K and 10K road races and you know setting records and so on and so forth. Um, and not to say they might not still be doing that without CoQ10, but um, let's just say it certainly is not hurting them. I just I feel like it gives me kind of like a sustained energy level um, that maybe I I wouldn't have. I I don't know. It, like again, without a counterfactual, like I don't I don't know if uh, I would still have that sustained energy level, but for some reason. Um, I feel like it just gives me that. And how, how many of those should I be taking in a day? Well, well, Rob, rest assured, you know, today, 31 years after we introduced our first CoQ10 supplement and, you know, 35 years after I and many other people in the health and wellness community started using this supplement, it is now one of the most, if not the most widely researched and documented natural nutrients on the market today. We're talking about several thousand studies confirming increases in cardiovascular output, um, essentially everything having to do with circulation, blood flow. Um, so you're not imagining it. And that, <laughs> and that was the first, the first claim that we made when, we were, when I started selling the race caps in 87 was this product naturally improves energy, endurance, and recovery. Pretty amazing. Um, I, I'm just thinking. I take. I typically will just take almost an equal amount of those along with. Um. I'm I'm sorry. I'm forgetting the name. Um. Caps. Yes. Yeah. The the premium insurance caps is what I was going to say. Oh, sorry. So, so um. Insurance caps. You're taking three to five a day. And then the race caps, I take a minimum of two a day, no matter what. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and on large volume days or um, other, in, you know, stressful times, then I might up it to three or four. So last last question on supplements. What what else would you recommend that I, I think about? Um, you know, you know that I I'm not a heavy like high mileage guy, um, but I do like to do races i find you know ultra races incredibly enjoyable and just great community kind of celebrations so i i probably race a little bit more than average um but i'm not 
redlining the whole time. Are there there any other supplements I should think about? Well, um, I'm going to go I'm going to go with I'm going to go with two um, oldies but goodies that are specific for runners. Um, as you know, um, you know, running is is very taxing on the body in terms of uh, red blood cell destruction, and thus red blood red blood cell production is always at a premium. Um, you know, we, you hear about runners anemia. Again, this this is a blood this is a blood destruction blood deterioration issue. So we make and we've we've inter- we've offered this product since 1989, um, but we make a nice um, vitamin B12 supplement. This is a methylated cobalamin um, mixed with folic acid at the proper ratio. So it's essentially on on par with like a B12 injection. Okay. And so B12 is super important for runners because it's critical for the synthesis of RNA, DNA for, for tissue repair and production. But especially, you, it basically isn't, you're not going to have red blood cell production occurring efficiently without ample supplies of B12 at okay. the ready. So that's an inexpensive one-a-day um, capsule that you add to your premium insurance caps. Um, cost you, I think it's less than a dollar a day it's about 50 cents a day Um, and that plus adequate amounts of protein is your best defense against um, low blood volume you know low rbc's um, exercise induced anemia anything like that okay i mean that's good to hear because i i take b12 but i don't take uh the hammer version of it what what is the hammer version called just so i can research it it's called Zobaline, X-O-B-A-L-I-N-E, like Xerox. Yeah. Zobaline. Okay. Um, and, it, and again, this is why and this is why we make a standalone B12. Yeah, the premium insurance caps have a nice uh, B12 component to them. Um, but this, the B12 that we put in in a standalone product, this is, like I said, You'd have to get you have to get an injection, and I would I would probably argue um, the, the the methylated B12 with the folate mixture is is actually going to be better absorbed and utilized uh, by the body than a bolus injection of B12. Wow, man, you're you're, you're on a, another level with that stuff. That's interesting. That's great. Um, and then you said there was maybe one last uh, supplement that I should think about. Yep. Um, and that's another oldie but a goodie from also from '89, and that is a, a, a trace mineral called boron. We don't need a lot of it, but we do need it critically in the body. It's involved in the endocrine system and hor- hormone, both testosterone in men and estrogen in women production and normalization. It's also critically involved in the body's absorption of calcium. So runners are, are, all, are rightly concerned with bone density. Um, boron is going to help you to absorb more of that calcium that you're getting from those leafy green and cruciferous organic vegetables. Um, and then it's also going to help counter the natural effect that running has or any type of endurance sport more than three to four hours a week is going to tend to depress hormone levels by significant percentages. Um, and this is the one safe, legal, um, 
no side effect way of helping the body encourage it, the endocrine system to function optimally and to maintain hormone levels at more normal levels. This is not, this is, doesn't elevate hormone levels. This is not, you know, like a natural Viagra or anything like that. We're not talking about this. <laughs> We're just talking about countering the depressive effects that endurance training has on endocrine function in the body. I, I think that's a huge, huge deal that's not really talked about as much as it should because um, it can really, I mean, once once those hormone levels get out of whack, it affects, what doesn't it affect? I mean, it, it, right. it yeah, yeah, it and can when really. It to affect, when it starts to affect the marriage, um, then, then, there's, then, there's, then there's bigger problems. <laughs> All right, I we covered supplements there at the end, and I I appreciate you doing that, um, just because I find it fascinating, and I I think it's important to not you know, because we're all doing miles, and uh, yeah, unless you have a ton of time to study all this, it's nice to kind of have a, a good high level kind of overview on it. So I appreciate you taking the time, Brian, and I I found all your fueling and hydration concepts um really really helpful and i honestly one i mean the my pre-race meal i'm gonna kind of re-strategize and test it out and uh just appreciate you taking all the time well uh, rob it was my pleasure entirely and i really uh, appreciate you uh humoring me and listening to my stories um and i'm i'm really glad that uh the, you know hopefully we've come across some things that you can try out and that uh, some of your listeners can also try and uh, make some adjustments with those calories days before and morning of. And then um, I'll look for, I really look forward to following up with you and, you know, hearing um, after you've had a couple of times to test it out in, in training and or applied it to a big race sometime in the next few months, you know, and, and letting know how it went and uh, yeah, whether, of course. Uh, whether or not I know what I'm talking about. I, I absolutely will. And honestly, I've, I've run a 50K it um pretty mountainous 50k on the front range and i just i was staying at a hampton inn i forget what was happening i think i i was in a rush i i have a tendency of showing up at the start line kind of at the last second but i only had eggs and showed up and actually felt like a different energy level that was more sustained i think i talked to zach bitter about this a little bit but um yeah. I just haven't fully built it into a routine. So I think talking to you, I'll, I'll re-strategize. And, um, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, worst case, I can just, you know, put those calories in in the first few miles. It's it's not like a big deal. Um, but you can't untake them out. You know, you can't take them out of your stomach. So, um, um, yeah, well, you, I agree. Less is best, always. You know, when, when things are going wrong or if you're having problems or whatever, you know, just start thinking, you know, what am I doing too much of, you know, what, yeah. what should I do? What should I do less of? Because that's probably going to get you there. That's probably going to help you get to the answer you need to find. That's awesome. And I wanted to finish with one last question. You guys uh, supported the North Face Endurance Challenge series this year, which I was incredibly excited about it's Dean Carnassus kind of idea that he generated and it's what a series of six races around the United States 
It's five races this five. year. Okay. They've already had. They already did um, Washington D.C., New York, Boston. Uh, then there's uh, Wisconsin, which is it's kind of near Madison, Milwaukee area mm-hmm. in September. And then the, the big grand finale is um, San Francisco in November. And it's distances from 5K to 50 miles on very challenging off-road trail courses. Um, very well supported. Logistics and everything are spot on. And his whole thing is, you know, is to come out there and try a new distance. You know, if, if you've only ever gone and done, you know, 10K or 15K or something on trail or a marathon, you know, go up a distance, go to 50K. You know, if 50K is the longest you've ever done, go to 50 miles. But do it here where you know you've got a safe contained course and professional sweepers and everything is going to be, it, I mean, it's five star for sure. Well, I, I commend you for, you know, supporting that event i think it's an awesome event I've, I've run their events before and i don't know hopefully i can make it out to san francisco i'm not sure if it'll work this year it might be next year but um hats off to supporting that event and then also just hundreds and hundreds of local trail races and bike races and all, all sorts of triathlons and i just i think it's underappreciated because you guys don't go out you know waving your flag like you know we support you know thousands of races or whatever but it's truly appreciated on a community level and and brian thank you for what you do right on rob well it's it's nice to have the acknowledgement and um you know this is we're just we're doing what we think we should be doing and helping the sport at the grassroots level and you know that's where we want to be and if other companies want to you know, sponsor Western states and, you know, some of these other marquee events and get their name in lights and then be like, okay, we won. We're, you know, we're going, we're going, uh, we're going on vacation now. That's, that's cool. But that's just not who we are. And that's not who we'll ever be. I, I love it. And, uh, take care. We'll, we'll stay in touch and I'll, I'll give you an update on, uh, on kind of rejiggering my nutrition strategy going into the race in a few weeks here. So thank you, Brian. Take care, man. Awesome, Rob. Thank you. Have a great weekend. Bye now. I'm joined again by Dave Bronlick. He just finished the Colorado Trail. Congrats, Dave. How you feeling, man? Uh, thanks. It's been a few days now, so I'm feeling pretty good. I've gotten back into running, which has felt good. But, yeah, it, it felt good to be done right after I finished the trail. Um, yeah, I was pretty tired. I think I got... Um, maybe not malnourished but definitely pretty pretty lean there by the end so yeah good to you know have have some hot meals and you know eat till i'm full every night these first few days that i've been back so yeah it's been good so tell me how many days did it take how many miles did you end up doing after this whole leaving out your front door as we saw in that youtube video and doing the whole colorado trail yeah, so let's see here. I, I did put up an Instagram post. I think it was 545.8 miles, if I remember correctly, off the top of my head. Nice. And it took me 22 days. So, That's amazing. And, uh, yeah. So for those who don't know, I did. I started at my front door. I think we've hit that point enough, and I finished the hike in uh, downtown Durango. So I got to... Uh, 
um, the actual terminus of the trail, which is um, at a, like a trailhead parking lot, maybe like three and a half miles outside of Durango. And then I walked or hiked along the roads and ended up being 4.7 miles to a place called Carver Brewery. And they offer a free Colorado Trail nut brown ale to anyone who just completes a through hike. So I figured that would be a perfect way to end my hike and enjoy that beer. And then I was fortunate enough to have someone at the bar buy me a second one of those. So I had two free beers at a Carver Brewery to celebrate the end of my hike and a whole bunch of food, which should go without saying. Wow, I, I, you earned that one. You earned that first beer. You earned all the beer you could drink. <laughs> I can't believe they only give you one. Yeah, but it's a yeah, it's a small business in Silverton yeah, or well, Durango. I mean, I mean, two two felt like a lot. One felt like a lot when I first <laughs> sat down there. I was just I yeah, I was hiking, um, you know, for about thirteen hours, and I had done thirty four miles, and I was just like, this is so different to be sitting for like fifteen minutes and. I was just like looking at the menu and like not moving and just drinking water and like had hardly touched the beer. So the, that one beer was, uh, was plenty and two was a lot. So did you keep looking at your watch? Like I need to get moving. Like, what do I need to be doing? Like, had you over those 22 days, like picked up just routine, like looking for X, Y, Z, yeah, so I did, um, you know, try to keep my Garmin charged the whole time so I could use that to track mileage and upload to Strava, and that worked out pretty well. It was really nice to, you know, be able to look at my watch and check um, distances with Gut Hooks, which is an app um, that hikers use, as well as the Colony Trail data book, so I know exactly how far it would be to the next water source or the top of this climb and stuff like that. But, you know, with running, you kind of fall into the trap just looking at your watch, like, three times in the same minute. Um, and especially with hiking, when you're going a lot slower, I ended up doing that a lot more. So, um, I don't know. Try, try not to think too much about the mileage and just think about uh, whatever <clears throat> random thoughts are coming to my head or... Um, just like what I was doing at that moment more so than worrying too much about the mileage. Well, I'm, I'm really happy for you. I mean, I knew going into this, you know, we're, we're going to be capturing as much as possible. I wish I was there on the trail with you to capture more of it. Um, Mm -hmm. if anything, just to, to through hike with you. Um, but I mean, we, we didn't know if you were going to end up making it all the way through. It's it's a huge challenge. There was what ninety thousand feet of gain over your twenty two days. Is that roughly correct? Eighty nine thousand. Um, yeah, but I was on the. I took a Greyhound bus to get back, and yeah, I took a pen and some piece of paper and my phone calculator and added it all up. And yeah, the actual number was ninety eight thousand four hundred one. Feet wow. of gain. I remember that's not that's not like the trail itself. That's you know starting at my front door, ending in downtown Durango, and the three fourteeners I did along the way. I noticed that. But, yeah, um, it's a lot of climbing. Tell me because I I watched your YouTube video that you put together 
which I thought was, mm-hmm. I mean, considering I think that was your first YouTube video, that was really, um, yeah, it was cool. Yeah, my first time ever using iMovie. <laughs> it, was, it was really good, Dave. No, seriously, it was, it was cool how you broke out each segment and kind of explained it, and we got to see your, you know, facial expressions after 300 miles, and you explained it all. Mm. Um, tell me, I, I didn't realize that you decided to do 14ers, like, as a side note. Like, the, were all the 14ers on the trail, or were you doing some of those for fun? Well, I mean, they're all, everything is for fun, but, um, <laughs> yeah, the trail itself does not go over any 14ers. Oh, I didn't know that. Does, okay. Yeah, it does access um, some of the 14er side side trails. So the ones that I did in order were Massive, uh, Huron, and San Luis Peak. Um, Massive, I guess, is the most well-known of those. is some um, kind of a sister peak with Mount Elbert, which is the highest peak. And Massive, I believe, is the second highest peak in Colorado. And those are right next to each other. Okay. Uh, and then the Massive... Like the main route up to Massive turns right off the Colorado Trail, and then Mount Huron is um, it's near Winfield. If anyone's familiar with the Leadville 100, that's where the turnaround is, and um, the Huron Trail is kind of right uh, behind there, I guess, to the southeastern side of it. And then San Luis Peak is down near the San Juans, and that's probably the easiest one to get to from the Colorado Trail and it was only like 1.4 miles from uh, the top of this pass that the trail went over and then you just make a side trip if you're going southbound to the right and it, it, it was it only took me maybe like 45 minutes to get to the top from the trail for San Luis Peak and that San Luis Peak was probably the highlight of my entire trip because I woke up uh, well I camped maybe a mile below where the turnoff is got up at 4:45 in the morning um and then i had just had a spectacular sunrise going up to san luis peak and it's just so cool to be up that high that early the sun hasn't even crested the horizon yet and it was it was really cool the other ones were cool too but um yeah it was just awesome i've i've had similar experiences on like training runs where going completely the wrong direction and getting lost or like yeah the unplanned event of trail like on the trails turns out to be the best experience like even beyond what i even went out to go do so that's really cool and i mean last time we talked to you i think you had 130 miles to go and Mm -hmm. i mean i wanted to hit the basic questions that i've been asking you like did wildlife kind of I, once you get up higher and you're, you know, further out on the CT, are you still seeing wildlife? Like, is the weather cooperating? Kind of like fill me in on those last 130 into Durango. Sure. So uh, I'll start with the wildlife. That'll be quick. Um, so down in San Juan's, I did see a number of elk herds, which was really cool to see, especially up high up above tree line and early in the morning. So that was, that was pretty neat. And the weather was pretty crazy in San Juan. Um, it is. It rained. Yeah. It rained pretty much every afternoon. 
And, you know, the rest of the trail before I got to the San Juans, it, it I guess, after Breckenridge, like, before Breckenridge, it was blue skies pretty much all day, every day. After Breckenridge, it was bluebird, not a cloud in the sky in the morning, and then some clouds, some rain may have developed in the afternoon or may not have. But the San Juans, it start out cloudy in the morning, and oh, it rained on me every afternoon. So that was something that, you know, I had to deal with. Um, let's see, one of the, I think the first night after we last spoke, um, it was the highest I can at, like, 12,200 feet. And I had just got my tent set up and got in my tent. I did everything except for eat, and then it started raining, and it rained for, like, four hours, and... You know, I tried to wait in my tent to be like, well, because you're not supposed to um, eat food in your tent because of uh, the wildlife and you don't want them, you know, kind of smelling it and trying to trying to get in your tent. Yeah. But, you know, after waiting for like two hours and getting really hungry, I was just like, uh, fuck it, I'm eating my tent. Yeah. So broke one of those backcountry rules. But with the rain, I don't think it was too big of a deal and, you know, nothing nothing crazy happened after that um let's see the next day yeah so the trail i should mention is there's probably about a hundred mile section um from like segment 20 to really 27 that's pretty much all a pub tree line it does dip down a little bit in segment 24 to the animus river but um, yeah, it's it's a long stretch to be above treeline, and then when it rains up there and it gets super cold, then I remember the next day it rained in the afternoon, and I was above treeline. I knew I had just a few miles left before it dipped back down again, and you know it, the clouds were coming in pretty hard, and I was debating: do I throw up my tent right here and try to wait it out? This is like two in the afternoon. And, you know, I kind of walked around and looked for a spot that was less exposed. I eventually just decided, you know, I only have like three miles to get to get down. And I ended up doing that. And I'm pretty glad I did because the weather was never that bad. Um, and, yeah, the last night I was out, um, the whole day I was thinking, well, if I do 30 miles today, that means I only have to do 27 on the last day, which will be good. But the problem was um, the end of that second day, if I was going to do 30 miles, I would have had to do, um, like, the end of it had a lot of exposure from what I had heard. And then, of course, you know, being in the afternoon, the storms came in, the storms came in and probably the worst storm um that I experienced on the trail hit on that last night, but I played it pretty smart, um, got my rain gear on, and the pines that I was in um, offer pretty good protection, so I was able to kind of stay under those and stay pretty dry, and it hailed pretty hard, it thundered for hours, I ended up waiting there for probably about an hour, and the rain finally, um, you know, it slowed down to a little bit of a drizzle and I was able to hike just a little bit further and camp for the night. 
And then I had to do 34 and a half miles to finish my hike the next day. So I woke up and started my headlamp on and yeah, that's what I finished. And I figured, you know, it's good to finish, you know, with a huge day because I've been doing big days. I didn't want to finish with like a seven mile day. I thought that would have been pretty anticlimactic. I wanted to kind of, you know, yeah. end it emphatically. <laughs> I mean, were the miles, I mean, because 30, 34 miles, I mean, it's a lot, but um, how did mm. how did that distance change towards, like, the latter part? When do you hit the San Juan Mountains, like, is it harder? Did you earn those miles even more towards the end? Um, or was it similar um, to the beginning of the trail in terms of difficulty? Yeah, I think in terms of difficulty, it's pretty similar. Uh, it's just higher, and there's a lot more exposed, and the weather is more unpredictable, which is what makes it harder with, like, the trail itself. You know, there's ups and downs the whole way, but it's those other factors that make it harder. You know, that 30-mile day I did on the last day, I think, was my first 30-mile day in, like, 10 days. Yeah. So it's not like I was doing 30s every day in the San Juan. So I probably averaged maybe 24, 25 miles a day in the San, excuse me, in the San Juans. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know for sure. At looking, looking back, what, what piece of gear are you like, thank God that I packed that. I got that on Amazon mm-hmm. or whatever. Like <laughs> I use that more than I would have ever imagined. And what, to the contrary, what piece of gear were you like, this was such a waste of money, like, I'm an idiot, why did I purchase this? Um, okay, so I'll take the, the second part of that first, I guess, because there's a more obvious answer. So, um, yeah, I ended up packing, like, a mid-layer, um, like, Nike quarter-zip, uh, like, long sleeve that I thought, oh, well, this will be good if it's kind of cold but not that cold. And I never wore that once. It was my pack the, the, the entire time. <laughs> and I debated on bringing that, like, before I left. And I figured, eh, it doesn't weigh that much. I might as well bring it. But uh, I guess I won't bring it next time. Um, what piece of gear am I super grateful for having? Um, uh, I, that's a bit of a hard question. But I think uh, I'm going to go with my my rain pants. For that one, okay. I mean, I could say obvious things like a tent, a sleeping bag, but um, at least on the Cotter Trail 2018 through Hiker Facebook group, um, I know that was, you know, a little bit contentious whether people are bringing rain pants or not. Um, and I'm really glad that I did um, because, you know, it did rain a lot. And one, one time we talked about in the last recording that I got caught out in the rain and they got really cold. I did not put on my rain pants. Um, but the other times that it did rain, it rained hard. Uh, I put on my rain pants. I wasn't taking any chances. Uh, and that worked out really well. It was also good to have them in the morning when it was cold and damp and, you know, a lot of the shrubs and plants on, around the trail are wet. And then yeah. if you have your rain pants on, your legs aren't going to get as wet. And then also for the bugs, um, it was really buggy everywhere. And I did have like a pair of long johns, but I found that the more robust insects could 
bike through those just a little bit, the rain pants were a lot tougher. Yeah. So I was happy to have those. What a, what brand were those? What, what type? Um, of, those uh, were actually Under Armour Storm. Okay. Rain pants. Cool. Yeah, That's I, one thing. Yeah. <laughs> I I'm I thoroughly tested uh, some Patagonia. I think they're Houdini pants. Mm. I think Jason Schlarb had mentioned those before, but for CCC, like if I get caught way up in the Swiss Alps during a storm, like, uh, like maybe I should spend an extra $20 on something that, you know, could potentially save my life. So, yeah, but they're exactly. super yeah. light. I think those Houdini ones are uh, a little more than 20 bucks, but uh, an extra 20 bucks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think I spent yeah, 90, well those... $99 on those, and I was mm. like, "Okay, I think I got 15% yeah. off yeah, with, like, it's... a coupon or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, any of that ultralight stuff can be super expensive. And honestly, the only reason I got the Under Armour ones was uh, back in the spring, the school that I work at put on a local, like, little 5K, and I ended up winning, and I got, like, a $30 Under Armour gift card, so... <laughs> Nice. I put that towards uh, those spring pants. So let me ask so, you: of I all, know. I would have got yeah, anyway. Anyway, yeah. Of all the food you had, because you had to pack in mm-hmm. all your food and take care of yourself, what did you like the most? What did you like the least? What did I like the most? Oh, definitely uh, peanut butter. <laughs> it's like my one of my favorite things. Um, the longer. Resupply sections, I'd bring two 16-ounce jars of peanut butter, and I would, you know, be still be rationing it, even bringing two. Yeah. Um, what did I eat the least? What were you like? Um, that that was a know. good idea, and it turned out, like, <laughs> you chucked it in the woods, and it's now part <laughs> of the compost pile. Um, I, don't, you, I just got so hungry out there. Like, there's nothing like bad <laughs> okay um yeah you know, i'll eat anything you know i had a bunch of hammer gels and i would eat those when i was walking and you know like those tasted good yeah even after i had a bunch of them um yeah it's just the thing about food and i i think more so before during our last update but I was getting really, like, extremely hungry, like, the most intense hunger I've ever experienced. And, you know, when you get that hungry, it doesn't really, like, it doesn't really matter what you're eating. As long as it's food, it, it's going to taste really, really good. Like they say, uh, hunger is the best sauce, which is a phrase I heard out of the trail. So. <laughs> That's interesting. And <laughs> what was your your favorite – well, actually, before I leave gear and food and stuff – How'd your shoes hold up, and did you have any, like, massive chafing issues? Because some of the listeners have chafing issues, including myself. I mean, mm-hmm. shit, I've I've gone out for 10-mile runs and chafed before. It just depends on yeah. <laughs> the circumstances, and you just did 545 miles or whatever. Like, how'd your shoes hold yeah. up? How was chafing and blisters and that stuff? All right, well, I'll take the second part of that again first. So chafing... Um, really nothing bad, you know, just maybe a little bit of irritation, um, where the hip belt for my pack rests and I had gold bond powder for that, which I really like. So, you know, but it was nothing bad. It was nothing super painful. 
Um, and really, that was my only shaping. Um, blisters, like I said earlier, I think that um, I didn't notice I had a blister until I took off one of my shoes and noticed that there was a blister there. So, you know, no real pain from blisters. Um, so for shoes, I wore the uh, Ultra Superior 3.5s. Um, the fit for them was comfortable, um, you know, minimal blisters. So that was good. But I have to say that I was pretty disappointed with the, uh, the durability on them. The, uh, like, the toe guard peeled, like, it separated. It didn't peel. It wasn't completely off, but it was completely separated on both shoes. So, and that was after, like, 200 miles. So, like, the last 300 miles, I was like, well, it's going to be any day now until, you know, I'm basically wearing sandals and I can see my big toe <laughs> from my shoe. But, um, you know, they, they did hold they did hold up. I never, I thought about buying new shoes in Lake City, but... I yeah. figured I could squeeze another 130 out of them, and I did, but I did chuck them um, when I got to Durango. Um, but Because uh, we we yeah, had that I discussion. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's okay. A picture would have been cool. I, I definitely would have enjoyed seeing it before and yeah. after on those suckers. <laughs> um, what I mean, you just did how many different segments of the CT? Uh, there's 28 segments. Do you have one segment where you're like, I'd go back there and train every day? Like, was there one segment that stuck, like, you know, sticks out in your head, or did they all kind of run together? Um, uh, well, no, they definitely there's definitely ones that are better than others. Um, I think in the last update, I said that Collegiate West three um, was like the most spectacular 50 miles of trail I've ever been on. Um, I think that's still true. Um, I mean, there's other cool parts. Collegiate West 2 right after Linfield between Mount Huron and Lake Hen Pass might be the most beautiful place I've ever been. Um, and then down in the San Juans, everything from like segment 20 to 24 and then after that as well, 25 was spectacular. 26, you know, anything in the any segment in the 20s is mostly above treeline, with and it's just pass after pass. So those kind of all those kind of last bunch of segments kind of blend together for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there, there's just so many cool spots and and cool places to go. Like they kind of advertise a trail that's even a thing by saying it's, um, you know, mile for mile, the most beautiful trail in the country. I can't speak for some of the other trails, but um, I think there's definitely some truth to that. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I mean, seeing your pictures that you put on that YouTube video, I mean, it looked mm-hmm. like they were all just spectacular views. So, yeah, huge yeah. congrats on getting it done. Like, I'm, I'm really glad and happy for you, and, and it's a lifetime achievement. Like you literally are gonna, you you're gonna be the 85 year old talking about this, you know, at some point, Dave. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a big deal. Like and, seriously. And a bunch of other stuff, hopefully. So no, thank you. Yeah, hopefully it's just the beginning. And so I want to end with la- like one last question. Like, what's your biggest takeaway 
what's your either your happiest moment or like most profound finding like of all of the 500 and how many how many miles was it actually again it was like 500 and 45 I did for, for uh 545.8 of all those miles like what did you learn what's your biggest takeaway your happiest moment um well it's hard to pick one happiest moment um but I'll just say that you know one of the things that you know I was thinking about so it's just a toward got towards the end is it's just it's just such a profound experience to be out there in the backcountry in the mountains um you know all on your own and you have to survive with you know what's on your back and rely on your gear and on your skills to to survive and keep moving forward and use you know everything that's on you and within you to just make the most of where you are and just soak up every second. And, you know, if things start to not go so well, if the weather turns bad, if you're hurting, um, you know, just embrace the suck is another common phrase and just reflect on what you're doing and just how amazing it is that you can do this. And, you know, just, just enjoy it because it doesn't, it doesn't last forever you know you eventually have to get back to your normal life i guess so you know it's just it was just 22 days to be to be away from everything else and just to kind of kind of live in the moment where the only thing that matters is the trail and the next footstep really so love it yeah that's awesome man huge congrats on getting it done like that's it was cool to talk to you before, during, and after this whole process, and I—I mm-hmm. I only hope to one day have you know 22 days or less to you know go after it at some point, just because it's so uh, convenient. I think you want to do it in less, right? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's that's kind of a good segue. I mean, so fastest known time. Yeah, that uh, that article that article is out for. Uh the public now so i know it's in writing right henry henry howard's article is that what you're referring to yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's it was cool (laughs) like we henry howard and i talked at north face which was my one year anniversary and i went to north face Mm -hmm. 50 miler in wisconsin actually to meet dean carnassus and um he wasn't there that year so i i missed out i think he had his son's graduation but uh, yeah, Henry and I actually had dinner together at one point, and uh, he interviewed mm-hmm. me. He was, I think, one of the very first people ever to reach out to me, and it was cool to see that that initial interview and how much has changed since that initial interview. So yeah, check that article out if you guys get a chance. I think it was called the the birth of training for ultra. So cool yeah, that you check that out, great. but. In that article, what Dave, Dave's giving me a hard time because I, uh, Henry asked, like, what are your, your crazy, like, what are your goals in the future? And I'm pretty ambitious with my goals. Like, I don't want to sit back and be like, oh, okay, I've checked every box. I'm good now. So one, one of those goals is an FKT attempt on the, the CT, which I don't know. I, I truly don't know. It's, one, it's probably 
maybe the most ambitious of the goals. Um, yeah. 60 miles a day is is what I calculated supported. So I don't have to have the 40-pound pack on my back or whatever weight it is. Well, uh, if you check out um, John Zahorian YouTube video about his unsupported FKT, he has like a six-pound base weight or some, something crazy. Like I, I I watched the whole yeah his whole video. Um, I think he did mm-hmm. it in nine and a half days. Yeah, <laughs> and his his like fast hike speed is like my running speed. So I was like, oh god, like I have so much to learn. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, that's... I don't know how he, I don't know how he hikes that fast without like going into a running form. I know. But... Seen <laughs> anyway, like yeah. I think the. The video, like, I, I still have it in my mind, him getting to Breckenridge. Like, in his yeah. fast hike into Breckenridge, he's, like, so excited, and it was just ridiculous, so. <laughs> yeah, because I was thinking about that, you know, when I was on the trail, and if I was able to go faster than three miles an hour, you know, the trail was pretty benign, and I was able to move pretty quickly. I couldn't, like, imagine doing four miles an hour and i tried you know if if i was trying to get out of an area or or i thought i could run a little bit try running with my pack on but it was just like to pat my pack was too big and it just bounce around a lot so i don't know i didn't didn't do too much of that but what do you yeah anything over like three like 3.1 miles an hour is is moving yeah no i agree that's like I think that was my race pace hike in Leadville without, you know, any kind of pack on. Um, what, what what are your thoughts on east to west and west to east, I think, is the directional difference. Like, if I were to start in Durango, well, let, let me, uh, is that even legal? Well, like, would all, people... It's, uh, it's would, north, south, and south. North, north. south, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it goes, no it boat, cuts no across, boat, so... Yeah. Yeah, I I know it's probably more east west west east, but um, hiker the hikers use uh, Nobo and Sobo. Okay, so of those two but, directions, okay. like if I were to start in mm-hmm. Durango and even just do a through hike and not even you know go for F- FKT, like is that is that respected or is that like the easy way because it's ninety thousand like loss of you know yeah, it's, it's definitely respected um and there's definitely a, fair, a big amount of gain too it's not like it's all downhill going that way <laughs> um i know it but uh yeah i i've it's more people probably i don't know 95 percent of people maybe more go from denver to durango mm-hmm. but there are people who do durango to denver um, I did meet, I think, two people going for a northbound hike. But, yeah, you can do it. And, you know, most of, you know, the three long trails in the United States, um, the common direction is north. So, cool. you know, there's nothing wrong with a northbound hike. 
Yeah, I mean, that way I'm like, I can just hike directly to the hospital, right? If I'm going for an FKT, <laughs> I can just, I can just I run right into the, water I, I think there's like a children's hospital over there. I'd just go directly okay. in for an IV. Or an ambulance, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so shifting gears, I mean, we'll, we'll have a good opportunity to touch base after you go for Leadville. So I still think this is pretty darn cool, like very unique that you just did 545 miles of hiking as part of your training block into the Leadville 100 miler and you know the listener I'm I'm going to be there to pace Dave for the last 15 of Leadville so I'm sure you'll hear more about that um Dave's been nice enough to do the last 15 and never summer with me coming up here very shortly we're like what three days yeah. away uh, today is a uh, Tuesday, and the race is on Saturday, so however many days that is. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I truly appreciate you going out of your way for this because Leadville, oh, seems, well, my pleasure. Leadville seems readily accessible compared to Gould or Gold, Colorado for Never Summer. Never Summer is pretty wild, don't you think? <laughs> Well, I don't know much about the race at all, except for briefly looking at the elevation profile. So I have a lot to learn, I guess. Okay. I, I've i read a race report or two and DNF there last year. So I have some unfinished business there for sure. And you'll, you'll see it because you'll see me in the last 15. Like, I'm going to get this done regardless. Um, but it's it's very helpful having you there to fend off, let's see, Volkswagen-sized bears, um, moose, and I think large cats was in a race report too. So we'll we'll get okay. to those. Are, those are actually those are ones that scare me, the cats. But uh, we'll, we'll get to see some large yeah, cats. I think we'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> and a, apparently, you just throw rocks at them. If I mean. That's what this this person did. So, So, um, I I truly appreciate it, and I'm just excited that you got the CT done, and I'm sure we'll give the listener um, even more feedback on how Never Summer went. I'll give you guys kind of a race recap just real briefly for you guys thinking about Never Summer or just want to hear about a crazy race. And Yeah, we want to hear about it, so. Yeah, well... Thank you for joining me throughout, you know, multiple episodes, giving the listener an update on, you know, doing something unique. You know, I haven't had anyone talk about through hiking any massive trails, so congrats. So that's a, it's truly a lifetime achievement and uh, very excited for you. All right. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Dave. And that was episode 53. Hope you guys enjoy it again next week. I'm going to try to lay down a race recap on the Never Summer 100K, my first DNF. That, uh, yeah, hopefully I have have a second chance here to finish it. Big thank you to Brian Frank, founder and CEO of Hammer Nutrition, for taking so much time. It's awesome to be able to pick his brain because his scientific understanding of how all of this stuff works is way beyond where where i will ever be and hopefully you picked up one or two small tips i know i did i'll test out kind of the pre-race meal here coming up and 
Yeah, just truly appreciate it. Big congrats to Dave Bromlick finishing the Colorado Trail as a training block for Leadville 100 miler. Really amazing. Truly appreciate his support as my pacer and crew coming up here. And I appreciate your guys' support. Big thank you to the Patreon supporters. Thank you to Hammer Nutrition, Sufferfest Beer, and Bigger Than the Trail. Guys, have a wonderful week. Train smart. And just don't forget to smile out there. Have fun. Enjoy your training. You'll get out a lot more frequently. And consistency in your training you know, plays a big part. So have fun out there. 